sound. Sound. Music. Acoustic. Noise. Sound. I have a favorite sound, I think. Sound. sound. Ultrasonic. How they listen. Just a little boop. The one place where it sounds the best. You're listening to sound. Sound matters. <laughs> You're listening to Sound Matters, a podcast about sound and things that matter. This film shows the human eardrum, which is only about a quarter of an inch across. Can you hear me? How can you hear me? Maybe I should be asking, what can you hear exactly? Sound waves now transformed into fluid pressure waves disturb the hair-like cells along the basilar keyboard according to the pitch of the notes. Of course, I know that you're hearing me, you're hearing this podcast. Can you hear a good sound or a bad sound? And how would you know what the difference was anyway? Triggering electrical impulses that proceed along the auditory nerve and form a brain pattern, which to us means music. Do you even care? I'm guessing that you do care. There's not much more annoying to be exposed to than bad sound. But what exactly do I mean when I say bad sound? And is it the same as what you mean? The thing is, as I hope we're going to clarify in this edition of Sound Matters, it's all pretty much relative. Though relative to exactly what is also quite hard to say. It's confusing, which is why I have two guests, one of whom builds some of the world's finest violins, and the other who is a professor of music. His name is Mark Grimshaw. I am Mark Grimshaw. Um, my official sounding title is the Obel Professor of Music here at uh, Oldborg University. The Music Professor, or perhaps we should call him Professor of Sound. Even though my title is Professor of Music, I really should be Professor of Sound, I think, so I like to talk more about sound. This is fine by me. Anything else before we kick off? Uh, and please bear in mind that I'm not a neuroscientist. Mark Grimshaw has been doing some serious and radical thinking about sound and how we perceive it. Current bee in my bonus is thinking about how the standard acoustic definition of sound has really um, passed its sell-by date. Look the word sound up in the dictionary. It's a good place, you'd think, to find a clear definition of what sound is. Or maybe not. Uh, if you open any English dictionary, and I think uh, quoting more or less from the Oxford English Dictionary, the concise version which I have, if you look at sound, it gives the standard acoustic definition. Sound is a moving pressure front through a, me through a medium and so on. So sound is a sound wave. It is something physical, a disturbance in the medium, usually air, but outside of our bodies, outside of our brains. And that is something that we then sense, okay? And presumably at that point, it no longer becomes sound. And it's here that Mark has spotted a problem. A problem with the way we think about sound and what hearing really is. This raises all sorts of interesting questions as to where sound is. And this is a favourite question of mine to ask students, because when you first ask that question, where is sound, people look at you and think you're slightly silly, and then start to think, well, hmm, that's actually quite an interesting question. So, where is sound? You'll find all sorts of descriptions about sort of sound being in the ear, sound moving in the space between us, sound is being located at the sound source and so on. So there's all these contradictory um, descriptions of where sound is. So even acousticians are rather vague. 
if sound is actually located at a place, which many acoustics people and books will, will actually tell you, how can it then be a wave? Because a wave moves. It's not located at a place. So that really got me thinking, what actually is sound? Not just where is sound, but where, what actually is sound? Now I should leave that juicy little thought hanging with you for a while, while I introduce my second guest, who, you would assume, knows exactly where the sound he works with is located. This is Andreas Hudelmeier. Okay, my name is Andreas Hudelmeier. I'm a violin maker, and we are here in my workshop in Clarkenwell, London. Playing a little bit. The proper word for a violin maker is a luthier the centuries-old tradition of making musical instruments by hand. In many ways, I'm still working the same way as they did um, three, four hundred years ago. Except for one thing. Modern instrument makers have taken to some pretty high-tech methods to help them improve and understand exactly how these instruments work and why they sound the way they do. Violin acoustics is becoming more and more important and we understand a lot more now about how the violin actually moves and vibrates. When I went to violin making school, I was told by my teachers, oh, the violin works like a loudspeaker, and you know, because nobody really knew. Now we have modal analysis. We can actually measure fairly precisely, or very precisely, how a particular violin moves. So it takes a lot of the guesswork out of our profession where it is much more difficult is to translate exactly which bit of what's moving is correlating with the particular aspect of the sound. As with so many scientific investigations, the science, when applied to violin making, revealed at first more about what makers didn't know than what they did know. We now see the violin more as a more complex structure because the front, as opposed to what I was taught, you know, is not the only thing resonating and the, the back being a little bit helpful as a spring and the ribs kind of being ignored. In the end, it's a movement that goes from the front through the ribs and continues into the back. So at every frequency, the whole structure moves together. This is something without actually measuring and, and then analysing it, we wouldn't have dreamt up. Things need to be dreamt up. Something that always reveals both the power and the limitations of the human mind. Now let's try to get a better grip on Mark Grimshaw's idea. The idea of sound being, well, somewhere in our minds. Sound is perception. Now, again, my thinking is influenced by what happens very often at sound conferences and so on. Someone will play, for example, the sound of a Geiger counter or an old film projector, a cine projector whirring away and ask the audience, what's that? That's a Geiger counter. And so is this. And so is this. It's actually the same Geiger counter in different locations. All different sounds of the same thing. 
It all depends on where you are when you're hearing them. Now, just for a moment, try to remember or imagine that Geiger counter sound in your head. Can you hear it? There have been many studies done where people are, are asked to imagine sounds and they have discovered that when you imagine a sound, this is your top-down process in cognition coming down into perception, that it activates pretty much the same areas of the secondary auditory cortex as sound from sensation. Okay, This is why I have this little pet theory that that place, the secondary auditory cortex, is the location of sound. Bingo. Or is it? But this does not mean that memories of sound are there. There's simply the location or the origin, I should say, the origin of the perception of sound that emerges. So sound, if you like, is actually created, formed there from either sensation or cognition or some mix of both. There's always going to be some mix of both, I think. Andreas claims that a good modern violin is just as good, really, as a really good old violin, a Stradivarius, for example. And bearing in mind that a really good old Stradivarius could set you back more than a million dollars, it would seem worth considering buying a new one. If you take a good modern violin by a good maker who's taking all, all the new information in and in making use of it, if you take one of those instruments now and of a similar good maker 20 years ago, uh, you will find a vast improvement, which is why now modern instruments don't have to be shy and can compare themselves to uh, pretty much all old instruments. And there will be a, a vast overlap in quality, even with million-pound instruments. The data can't lie, right? A couple of years ago in Paris, they made a very exciting experiment where they blind tested six of the best instruments um, and compared them with six modern instruments and had ten soloists blind test them. So the, the players also didn't know what they were playing. And funnily enough, neither in a room by themselves or in the big hall, first without audience, later with an expert audience and with orchestra, in none of these circumstances, the soloists who previously said um, as a player they would instantly recognize uh, and, and tell a, a modern instrument from a Strad or Guarneri, uh, weren't able uh, to do so, um, which doesn't mean there are no differences between the instruments, but it makes very clear that there are lots of complex psychological elements to our perception. Now, of course, a modern maker like Andreas would like to say that his instruments are as good as anything else in the world. And the blind test is pretty convincing. But what is really going on here? Should things sound the same? Or is one thing simply always going to be better than another? Or are they just going to be different? Good sound. What is good sound? 
and who makes that judgment? Again, you've got this question of categories, good sound, bad sound. Is it, is it authentic sound? Is it real sound? And so on. It's a, it's a very fascinating area and it's not really something that's been looked at. I don't think musicians want to cheat us if, if they say they can uh, tell the difference when they can't. But it just means that if you told so many marvelous things about an instrument, all the provenance and all the soloists that have played and recorded on it, it's very hard to think other than that this is brilliant and you do your utmost to get the, that brilliance out of that instrument. So for us mere mortals who are not used to playing million dollar violins, here's a simpler analogy, crisps. There's research done on how different sounds played through headphones to you will affect your perception of the taste and tactility, the crunchiness of crisps. So you can have a, uh, you're still eating the same crisp, which is still fresh out of the packet and so on, and nice and crunchy, but you don't hear the sound. You might sort of feel it, but you actually, you are played different sounds. So you get some sort of real sort of, sort of soggy, munching, chewing sound being played into your ear while you're eating these crisps. And you think, those are really stale, or they've they got moisture into the bag or something like that. And maybe hearing sound isn't really even a separate experience at all from what happens at the same time with all your other senses. They were doing some research on mice and how they smelled. And they discovered quite by chance, I think the researcher wrote in his paper that he happened to put down his coffee cup on the table. So there was a sound there and he happened to be measuring what was going on there. And he suddenly noticed a spike from the electrodes. And this led him to think, well, actually maybe something they can actually sense sound going on there. They are sensitive to sound waves in their nose. And so a little bit more research and so on, and what they actually found was of the, the uh, there's approximately 50% of the nerves in the mouse nose that are activated in with smell alone. And there's about 25% that are activated by sound alone. And there's 25% approximately that are activated by sound and smell together. Have to be a combination of sound and smell. And they came up with this uh, new sense called smound. <laughs> Smell and sound and so on. And then you begin to think, well, what have we not yet discovered about ourselves? Do we have that in our nose as well? Perhaps we hear through our nose in some cases. Certainly we can pick up sound waves through vibrations in our body. We can feel and stuff like that and so on. Is that really hearing? Well... It makes it very difficult to conceive of our consciousness, to conceive of our perception and so on, when we are stuck in a system that is based on separate categories. And then you try to think of these sort of, well, how are these, how do these categories relate to each other? And then you start to think, well, actually, these categories are actually overlapping and perhaps they're sort of each affecting the other. And then you start to think, well, why bother having categories at all? And so on. And maybe it's us our thinking in terms of categories and made us think that actually uh, we have these five separate senses. They're completely disconnected from each other and so on. Our thinking perhaps is entirely wrong our approach to the whole question of our brain and how we perceive our consciousness is perhaps entirely wrong, but perhaps we simply cannot help it. We are stuck in that way of thinking, we are stuck in that language. If you hold a cheap plastic violin in one hand 
and a beautifully handmade brand new Hudlemeyer violin in the other, I'm guessing that you just know in advance which one was going to sound best before you even play a note. Basically, I'm, I'm doing three different tap tones, so, and because they're, they're vibrating, I'm holding sort of the part where they're the loudest to, to the microphone. It's about the look and the feel of the thing, and maybe even the smell. All this is not at all accepted in the musician's world. Which might be why, despite the science and the data analysis, the top musicians will take a bit more convincing before they hang up those million-dollar instruments. And there are a number of very prominent big players who are, again, I'm sure they're convinced of what they're saying, and I very much welcome them to do similar tests. And if they can tell the difference between the you know, old Strats and Guarneris and the, the best modern, uh, then they will be very interesting and we can learn something from it. It's just, again and again, by trying to find out what the difference is and, you know, getting better and better, this is how we came acro across the whole thing. Which leaves one final thought experiment. Taking Mark Grimshaw's idea that if sound is an emergent perception in the brain, that maybe one day we might even be able to find it there, code it somehow, stick in a few electrodes, and create sound in our heads. Now, if you can actually then extract that sound, you defined it there, you can actually identify neurological activity and say, right, that is the perception of sound emerging right there. Can you then decode it? The answer is, of course, yes. Maybe not just not yet. If you can then extract sound, what can you do with that? You can do all sorts of interesting things like think sound into a computer. You can compose your music just by thinking about it. You could plug yourself into someone else's head. So you might actually get to a stage where you completely get rid of the idea of sound waves blasting out of people's earplugs and stuff like that in buses. Now, wouldn't that be wonderful? We could actually have some peace and quiet and not be forced to listen to someone else's music. It's just sort of tuned in directly into their brain. So that's my vision of utopia. <laughs> Thank you to Andreas Hudlemeyer and Professor Mark Grimshaw. This was the last edition of Sound Matters in this series. And I hope we'll be back inside your head for another series sometime soon. Until then, a big thank you to Andrea Rangecroft for editorial support throughout the series. Sound Matters is written and produced by me. My name is Tim Hinman. And not least thanks to BNO Play, who make this podcast possible. You can find out much more about them on their website at beoplay.com. Sound Matters.